You're listening to Dave's podcast. Tell me what you did this morning. So this morning I woke up, fed my dog, took him outside. What time did you wake up? This morning was like 8 o'clock, so I slept in. Okay. I've been on the 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. grind for the last month. Okay, you fed your dog, then did what? Took him outside, got back in, he put himself back to bed, and then uh, went over to the gym, did some cardio in the morning, a little fasted cardio. What is cardio? Cardio for me is not running, because I'm not built for that. So it's low intensity, walking on the treadmill at an incline, just getting a little bit of a sweat on, not too hard. Trying to get into ketosis. So you're saying you can walk and get cardio in? Yes, that's cardio for me. Yeah, I believe that. I played all the sports where you sprint really fast Yeah. and then you get a break. Yeah. So any type of prolonged running for it's just not for me. It hurts. And how long did you walk for? Today was 50 minutes. I try to keep it at least 45. And then what I do is I watch a really good show. So right now I'm on Yellowstone. So the TV that you have in front of the treadmill in the gym, yep. you have Netflix or whatever on it. Yep. You throw a good show on. Yep. Throw a good show okay. on. Something that's at least 45 minutes so I know when the show is done. Do you know that's like a proven habit technique actually, yeah. which is like, I think it's called like habit stacking. I don't know if it's called, it's some bullshit like that, but where like you do something that you don't want to do and you pair it with a reward. So you're like, I can watch this show, but I got to do it while I'm doing exactly. hour cardio. In. Yeah. That's what I did. The first time I did it was uh, Sons of Anarchy. And they had a solid like six seasons. So it makes you want to do it. You're like, I yep. can't wait to watch the next episode. Yep. And so I'm going to go do oh, it. Oh, yeah. There's multiple times where you get to the end of the episode and you go, I have to watch the next one. So you just stay on and you keep on grinding through it. So you got an hour, you got 50 minutes of cardio in, which is walking. And then what? Then a little bit of rollout, a little bit of uh, activation, just to make sure everything is still functioning. Then from there, went home, had another little ice golf meeting like I was talking about. An ice about. golf meeting. And now you're here. <laughs> and now, now here. you're here in my house. Okay, this is my friend Adam, Adam Picard. Adam is a trainer. He's a golfer. He's a friend. Here's a funny story about how I met Adam. So we moved to Vermont in June of 2020, play golf at this place. I'm not going to disclose the exact location because some things are better left secrets. And playing golf, and I got really into golf. So I played golf my whole life. Since I was like six, seven, eight years old, my dad played golf, his dad played golf. And so they had me at the range just like playing golf. And I played golf in high school. I played golf for like one week in college. I never got below really like a five or six handicap. I work in Boston. I live in Boston for a decade and we have two kids. And so I maybe played once or twice a year, but it was good because when I quit golf, like when I was 18 and I quit golf, it was like, I was just such a, I'd be a club smasher, a club thrower, an absolute freak out. Like I wouldn't talk, my dad and I would be playing golf and wouldn't say a word to each other for nine holes. <laughs> Have you been there? I haven't been there. I've been there okay. with other things, but. Okay. Well, with other, so you can relate to it. <laughs> I can relate. And so I was like, fuck this. I hate this. I'm quitting golf. I didn't play for a decade. Yeah. Then golf starts to come back up in a little bit of different setting, which is like, I worked in like a corporate world and people, I remember this. My first year at this internship that I had, they had a golf, the VPs, the big important people in the company, they had a golf thing. Yeah. They were like, oh, you play golf? And I said, yeah, I'm okay, like five, six handicap. And I got to go and I play golf with the big boss and he sees me hit a couple good shots. Next thing you know, Monday of that week, now I'm back in the office and like, that guy knows my name and he's oh, like, yeah. what's up, Dave? You know, and like, and I'm like, okay, their golf has other purposes. Like, this is cool. There's a lot of other purposes with golf. So I get back into golf. 
but I only kind of played like once or twice a year. And that's really frustrating because you can't get better once or twice a year is like, if you ask me to shoot a basketball right now, like yeah. I'm a good shooter off the record. I'm a good shooter. <laughs> but if you went right now, I wouldn't even hit the fucking rim. Yeah. No, me either. So I like, couldn't get back into it. We move here. A bunch of things happened in my life where the company that I was working at got acquired. We moved to Vermont. I started, my whole company was remote. I have a bunch of time now. And we live right near a golf course. I mean, right fucking yeah, near a right golf course. Like, we bought this house. I didn't like see that this was here and then we bought this house. We bought yeah. this house. And after we made an offer on the house, I was driving out to just explore the neighborhood. And I remember being like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's like the Holy Grail. Found it. Found it. Also coming from Boston, I was like, I'm never going to be able to join this place anyway because I, I had no concept of like what a golf membership costs. And it was like a couple grand and I joined and... I'm so into golf. Fast forward a year later, I meet this, and I'm going to get to you, don't worry. <laughs> Fast forward a year later, playing golf, meeting a bunch of people. It was also really cool because I was not a very social person for a while. It just was all work. Now you, you're up at this place, you meet a bunch of people, none of them work in tech, so I don't ever have to talk about my job. They're just like, you're just Dave. I don't know, you're from Boston? <laughs> okay, cool. Whereas like everybody asks, like, oh, what do you do for work? And right. I meet this guy who ends up being my accountant. We, I had a really complicated business year because I had two companies that were acquired. I started to build my own business. And so I had some tax guy in Boston and here we're trying to do this over the phone. And he's like, I can't, I can't help you. So randomly I find this guy up here, meet with him. We spend a lot of time with each other doing taxes. Come April, he's like, we should play golf. Play golf, he's a great golfer. He's like, you need a bookkeeper. I got this woman that does everybody's books. She's amazing. I'm like, great. He's like, her name is Laurie Picard. Great. She helps me out. She's my bookkeeper for like six months. I'm working with her. Fall of this year, I'm two years into golf. I find out that there's this trainer locally who is the only TPI, correct me if this is wrong. He's the only TPI certified, level two certified trainer in the state of Vermont. Yep. We'll explain what TPI is and all that <laughs> shit in a bit. And I go to meet you and you're, we do this assessment and I'm working out and we're small talking and didn't even fucking put it together. <laughs> no. I'm like, oh, I work with this lady. She's got the same last name as you, Laurie Picard. He's like, that's my mom. There's <laughs> <laughs> a whole family so affair. So now, so I've been, I got to know you. Be, you train me sometimes. You train lots of other people. And what's cool, and I wanted to have you on here because you, you become a friend and I think you have an interesting perspective on stuff. And I want to talk about non-work things. But also because I'm really fascinated by the world that you're in. And a lot of, I want to record this podcast actually for even people who've never listened to a podcast of mine. I think if we put a podcast down about like golf and fitness, this can be something that like you send to all of the Vermont ish people and they're like, yeah. this is what this is. So, anyway, that's context that I wanted to set for people today. But I wanted to hear, I want to talk about golf and TPI stuff. But first, I want to just hear like a little bit, tell people about your background, how you got into fitness in general, maybe with some of your dad and your childhood sprinkled in? Yeah. So fitness, I've been in and out of a gym since I was zero years old, right? So my parents met in a gym. It was the old Gold's Gym that it was around. We don't have a Gold's Gym here anymore, but... What year was that? Like, is this like Gold's Gym in like the 80s? This is, yeah, this is Gold's Gym in the 80s. What, what, what do you think Gold's Gym in the 80s was like? <laughs> oh, you know, it's like those really thin tank tops that 
you know, barely covered the nips. Everybody, <laughs> everybody's sweating all over. Basically, everything. the P card fitness logo. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Everybody's all jacked out. It was a whole community. It was like a family. But yeah, was, we were in and out of there. We got pictures of me and my siblings in duffel bags with my dad carrying us in with a duffel bag into That's the amazing. Gold's gym. And your dad was a professional bodybuilder. So he never went professional. Okay. He always stayed in that AAU type league. He so. was a bodybuilder. So you're like in sixth grade and someone says to you, yeah, Adam, my dad is an accountant. And you say your dad is, my dad's a bodybuilder? Yeah. Back then, if I knew how to say it, I would just said he was a moose. Because <laughs> he is a fucking moose. <laughs> he is an absolute moose. Yeah. But not only was he, my mom was also a competitive bodybuilder. Wow. Yeah. So at one point, they were uh, Mr. and Mrs. Couples USA with each other. What? Yeah. So, yep. They've won a whole bunch of different things. They've been all over the country from, you know, Maine down to Florida, all over the place doing bodybuilding. So, like, fitness was just like when you were born, this is what your family did. Same way that. Leah's parents' neighbors like have cows, yeah. you know, they have a farm. Like this is what they did. Yeah, this is all they did. So in the beginning, my dad, they had no idea what they were doing, him and his buddies. They just got into a gym. They started working out. They realized, okay, this is pretty cool. So they decided they wanted to do a competition. And he said they literally had absolutely no idea what they were doing. They just knew they had to grind as hard as they could, as heavy as they could, and as fast as they could. And so they were taking random stuff there used to be something on the shelves at gnc called black beauties and it was basically your pre-workout and this is what, what, what year gnc with this like 90s i don't even know if it was gnc oh. you know it could have just been a mom and pop shop that had some kind of pre-workout <laughs> up there but they were just flowing through everything getting huge went through their first competition and all of a sudden it just clicked he was like you know i have a good physique for this yeah i think i can do this and that's when he really started going hard at it and a few years later that's when he met my mom and she said yeah let's do this they both started doing the bodybuilding competitions and all of a sudden baby one Brittany came out my dad i think that was his last year of competition was when my sister was born and then all of a sudden now I got double genetics for bodybuilder because I was baby number two. It's crazy. It's great. Yeah. yeah. That's why you can like not work out for six months and then back squat 400 pounds. Yeah. You know, sometimes and not get hurt. it's just in there. It is. I mean, genetics have an impact yep. for Honestly, sure. The biggest thing about genetics is genetics are a bitch. So sometimes people have the genetics for it, but it doesn't mean everybody can't do it. You yeah. know, it's sometimes you got to code your genetics. You got to build yourself. I've actually thought about that a lot recently. So I've like lifted weights in some form my whole life and I've been in and out of phases where I was like really, really into it, you know, like mm -hmm. pre-workout, this and that. And that now I'm 35 and I'm like, dude, my whole family looks like me, like size wise, like height. And you're never going to be 200 pounds. Yeah. Or like if I needed it to get there, it'd be have to be such an unnatural way. And it's kind of shifted my perspective on fitness. Like I still want to be strong, yeah. but I'm like the chase to, for me, my body type to be big is like, it's going to be very fucking difficult. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, everybody wants a little bit of something that they don't have, but kind of like what we've talked about in the past is you kind of have to gear it for what you want and how you want to live. Yeah. And so I don't, personally, I don't believe that there's any wrong thing that you can do in fitness, you know? So let's say... I mean, we could talk about once we get into the more TPI stuff about the windows of opportunity in life and whether it's speed, strength or power. Yeah. But, Wait, let's talk about that. Before we move on from the bodybuilding thing, there's something I need to go back to. Yeah. I know you have one ridiculous story from that universe, from that world. Give me one thing that we can put on. So one story I hear all the time was my dad 
you walk in the gym, you go, that guy's a meathead, right? Like, I'm not touching that guy. I'm not talking to that guy. He might eat me. Like if you see your dad? <laughs> yeah. If you see my dad walking to the gym. So my mom's brother, he was working out at the same time and he had no idea that my mom and my dad were talking to each other. And so one day she goes back and talks to her brother. She's like, yeah, I've been talking to this guy, Mike Picard. And, you know, I really like him. He's a really nice guy. And all of a sudden my uncle stops and he goes, Lori what do you mean he's a nice guy? Like that guy's going to eat, he's, he's huge. He's going to eat you. And so <laughs> I was like, no, you got to meet him. And so my mom brings my uncle into the gym and he said that my dad was over there repping out chest press with like 120 pound dumbbells or something like that. And he chucks him on the ground. He's grunting. He stands up. He's like looking in the mirror. He's got that angry face on because he just repped out this mad weight. And then turns over, looks at my uncle. My mom still has that face on and comes right up to my uncle and all of a sudden goes, oh my God, Brian, it's so nice to meet you. My name's Mike Picard. <laughs> <laughs> is that because that's his normal disposition? Yeah, that's it. You know, he's just a really quiet, really nice, get to know him type guy. Can be shy, you know, like everybody can be a little bit shy when right. they, and of course he has interest in my mom. So, you know, he's got an impressive family, but that's just how he is. You know, he can be intense when he needs to be, and then he can switch it off and be that kind, caring individual that I know him as his dad, you know? Do you think bodybuilding is not a, like when you talk about like which type of life do you want to live and how you want to feel, could somebody go through their life feeling like you feel as a bodybuilder or you're like, that's a life of like, he's pushing himself to like an insane point to do a competition. And then you kind of scale back to how should your body actually feel? I haven't done it personally, but from what he tells me is, you know, the two weeks before a competition, when you're gearing up for it, he says, you look awesome, but it's the possibly the unhealthiest you are in your life. And it's not just from a body standpoint. He said, mentally, you're cutting so hard that all of a sudden you can be talking to somebody on the phone that you called. And five <laughs> minutes later, you have no idea who you're talking to just because <laughs> you're just delirious. You're, you're just delirious. Your mind is uh. asking for those, you know, the carbs and the fats that you're not taking in because you're trying to cut so hard. And another story was with his first bodybuilding experience was, I think it was up in St. Albans. So he said he cut down, I think he said he was right around like three to 4% body fat, which is not sustainable. And so on his way home, him and his buddies hit every fast food restaurant that they could in that hour drive back to Winooski. And in one day he gained 24 pounds. Holy shit. Yeah. 24 pounds. And he said, he doesn't know how his heart didn't stop. He said he didn't sleep for two days because his heart was beating so hard from all of the sodium and everything. Trying to that process he was all just that. trying to process all of it. And he said it was <laughs> the one time he would ever make that mistake because he just couldn't believe that he even survived through it. But like he said, he, he they had no idea what the heck they were doing. That's literally like feeding a unit. It's just figure body, just like this machine trying to figure out how to process all yeah, this. Totally. He gained 24 pounds. 24 pounds Man, in 24 hours. I think it's funny sometimes when I wake up and I like weigh three pounds less than I did or something right. like that. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can naturally fluctuate between the three and eight pounds every day. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you grew up to be a good athlete. You were one of the better baseball players in the state of Vermont. You went to UMass. You had a good career at UMass. Do you have any good stats you can rattle off? I'm just trying to show that you're a credible person. Not like you or me, like you went to a borderline D1 school, had an ERA of like 54 because I only had three appearances and got lit up each time. Yeah, yeah. And I spent my whole career fucking traveling for no reason. You were actually on the field. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in Vermont, you know, it's a smaller state and I'll talk about that after, but junior year, I think I hit something like 560 
at the end of the year. Oh, and were you lifting weights in high school because of your dad? Yep. And do you think that gave you an advantage? I think it was the biggest advantage that I could have had, you know, because I'm not the tallest guy. I was an outfielder. But what my dad knew and what I've come to learn through all the schooling and everything was that you have that certain age where you can start to find certain things about lifting. So when I turned 13 years old, he didn't let me lift, but I already showed some interest in it. So what he did was... You know, we had just learning about form, whether it was with paper towel rolls, whether it was a PVC pipe, something like that. So trying to learn form before we start taxing muscle fibers when that testosterone first hits. So you go yeah. work out and he'd be like, you can do all the motions, but you're going to just do them with right. paper towel holders. Yep. That's awesome. Or, I love if that. I was, or if I was in the gym, I'd be watching what he was doing with his clients. So I'd be constantly learning about, oh, well, they're doing that wrong. So now I got to learn how to do that correctly for when I'm doing it on my own. And then at 14, you were allowed to lift? 14, I started lifting, but it was nothing super taxing. You know, it was lightweight. Let's figure out reps. Let's start to build some structural development around joints, that kind of thing. So that when we start getting older, now we can tax the muscle fibers and have a really good base around those joints from a mobility, from a functional point, from a strength point all those smaller intricate muscles that really surround those joints. Now we can tax the bigger bodied muscles in the body and we have a good base to start with. How many of your friends when you were 14 or 15 years old were lifting weights? Back then, I don't think anybody. So it's definitely become more popular now, which is great to see, but maybe one or two. I just feel like I asked you that answer because I feel like it's always like one person in a friend group. Like in high school, we were just, my friends and I, we were all into sports, but we were not into lifting. And there was one kid who was really into lifting and he'd be like, come on, you should lift with me sometimes. And like, we would lift with him once and like, couldn't even bench the bar. And it's a miserable experience. But it's interesting to hear that because it was rooted with your dad and you had the right structure to do it, like it became a positive thing. Yeah, totally a positive thing. And like you were saying, there was always that one kid that did. (laughs) But from what I remember back then, there was this whole thought around the biggest one that comes to mind was if you lift, you're going to get slower. I always heard it was like lifting stunts your growth yeah, or something that too, like that. Right. So, and maybe there's all, there's studies on that. Right. But that's why we have those age brackets where you want to start, where you don't want to start, what you want to work on in those age brackets, that kind of thing. But yeah, back then it was like, if I start lifting, then I'm not going to be able to run a fast enough 40 or I'm going to start getting slower on the soccer field and I'm not going to get those breakaways, like that kind of thing. Right. I'm not going to steal second base. You're like, I'm trying to hit bombs. Yeah, I'm going to get right. big. So <laughs> uh, so you're a good baseball player in high school. You go to UMass. Yep. So ended my senior year in high school with Gatorade Player of the Year in Vermont. Went to Legion Ball that summer. We ended up winning the state championship for Legion then. Went to regionals. Committed really late to UMass. So a lot of people commit early, like that junior year, early senior year. I didn't commit until January of my senior year. Did you have offers? I did have offers. I had offers from- Take a drink of your water, by the way. I had offers from a lot of D2, D3, one other D1 college. And Um, were you like a baseball player? Like you're like my identity, like this is my whole life. I love baseball. Yeah. Played football as well, all the way up through high school. Played hockey before that. Ended up stopping playing hockey. Played intramural hockey, which if I have one regret in sports, it's quitting hockey. I love hockey. But I really wanted that off season between football and baseball to where I could develop strength, speed, all those components to be the best it could be at baseball because in my mind, baseball was it. And did your dad push you on that at all? No. He so actually, even though he was such a lifter and trainer, like he wasn't like, I'm going to train you. No. So... To this day, my dad's trained me once. 
Interesting. Other than form and function and all that kind of stuff, as far as really one-on-one training stuff, he's trained me once. And I think I wanted that, but I also think he realized from what I was saying, he did everything on his own, right? And then he found his way. You wanted him to coach you? Well, not necessarily, because there's always that father-son dynamic. It can be great or you can ruin a relationship that way. Yeah, exactly. So I think he wanted me to find my own path. And he always, I always knew that there was guidance if I needed it. So, you know, he might build me a program and then maybe he'd be training somebody while I was in back then he was, we weren't just that one-on-one. He was in a bigger box type gym. Yeah. Adam, get your ass down. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So you might hear that for you. I hear that from the other room and I'm looking around, I'm like, how is he seeing me? And then you look up at one mirror and you can see his eyes looking at you in the mirror, that type of thing. But (laughs) yeah. So, but yeah, you kind of wanted me to find my own way. And if I ever had questions, he was there. But from there, it just grew, you know, and then I realized, okay, I'm doing this lifting and I can personally see that I'm now excelling past who I might have been even with the year before. Hmm. And so how do I make this a process to where I can be the best I can be showing up for baseball? And that's why I took that year (laughs) off in between football and hockey and baseball. So I'm an outsider to this area in Vermont and you're not obviously as a high school athlete and, you know, there's not many really good ones that come out of the area. Lots of people know your name. I have no fucking idea. So I'm out, we're like swim lessons with my kids and I'm talking to this guy and he's asking, we're talking about golf and I'm talking, well, I work out with this guy, Adam Picard. He goes, Adam Picard. He goes, that guy fucking killed us in high school. (laughs) And it turns out he was like, I'm like, what? And he's like, I think he's like 10 years older than me or something like that. He's like, yeah, I coached at this high school for that. And he used to just, him and this other kid used to just ruin us. And I'm like, where am I right now? Like, who, what the... That's a cool thing about Vermont is, of course, it's a state. A lot of people think we're in Canada, honestly. Nobody really knows where Vermont is unless you've been to Vermont. When I tell people, anybody that I know from like my previous life in Boston, when I tell them that I moved to Vermont, they think that I live in a cabin in the woods. Oh, yeah. No doubt. (laughs) Which is not true at all. (laughs) Funny story was one of my friends from college, he lived in uh, Connecticut. And so he was coming up to see us over, I think it was summer break after summer ball and everything. And he's driving up and how it works in Connecticut is every mile marker, there's usually an exit. So (laughs) (laughs) whereas you get on 89, the major interstate coming up through here and it's exit 10. Now exit 11 is 15 miles away. So it's not like it's really close. So at a certain point he called me and he goes, yo, uh, I think I'm going to turn around and go home. (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean, man? He's like, I'm looking at the exit signs. I'm supposed to get off on exit 11 or 12 or whatever it is. And I'm at exit eight and it still has, says I have an hour and 20 minutes to go. He's like, oh, I'm looking at his trees. I have no idea where I am. (laughs) We were driving somewhere last summer and we were in that stretch between like the Richmond exit or whatever, 10 or 11 or wherever there's 16 miles between uh, near us. And uh, we pulled off the highway because one of the kids had to pee. Sam goes pee, we get back on the highway. We're supposed to be going south, I go north. And the second that I got on the highway, I went, fuck. <laughs> because there's 16 miles yeah, between 16 the exit. Miles. And so like the kids are going nuts. And so like, I know Lee and I are just like, we can't even be mad about it. It's, we're gonna have to make a 30 minute U-turn right now. Yeah. And you just have to deal with it. Yeah, there's no, <laughs> unless you want to do the illegal yeah. turn off through the do not turn area. It's a long ways. All right, so you go through UMass, you have a successful baseball career at UMass. Most home runs in school history, second most, third <laughs> no. most, sixth um, most. I think I was one home run away from the centennial home run leader. Or not centennial. In a hundred years? Not a hundred years. What's a ten year one? A decade? Decade. Yeah. <laughs> That's UMass. So yeah, UMass. UMass, UMass good education. I was gonna say a hundred years ago, yeah, some guy named yeah, like some you guy. know 
Herschel. Yeah. So, and then I think I'm on the all-time list for games played and at-bats as, nice. as well. All right. So, so, you had a good career. You graduate college. Yep. You become a personal trainer, go work for your dad. Yeah. So, my thought through college was I wanted to be an athletic trainer. So, one of the guys on the field with, you know, whatever team it is. And I hope you're going to tell the soccer player story right now. Because <laughs> you, yeah. you should. Yeah. So... The reason I decided to switch to personal training, like my dad, was I had this issue where I... Wait, first, <laughs> you, were, you were in school, you were taking specific classes, like you were learning about right. the body. Right, learning about the body. So I think this one was, was like a prevention of athletic injury class that we were taking. So we had to do some time in the training room, working with the other students in the class, that kind of thing. And you get into a situation where... On one table, you have somebody who just tore an ACL and they're trying to get as much inflammation out of the knee as they can so they can get fit for a brace to get back out on the field as soon as possible. The first question they ask is, how long is this going to take till I can get back to practice? How long is this going to take till I can play? And on the table next to that person is somebody who took a soccer ball off the quad <laughs> and they're complaining about how they don't want to go do a conditioning practice, right? So... Personally, I'm picking the guy that wants to get back out on the field because I'm like, hell yeah, man, that's what I would do. I don't want to help. I mean, I do want to help, but I don't want to evaluate somebody who took a soccer ball off the quad. I guess it's just different mind frames. But so from that point on, I decided that if I can't treat everybody fairly and I want to put my time into somebody that I want to be more invested with, maybe this isn't the right thing for right. me. Right. Yeah. You're just, I get that. You have to just treat like a doctor almost. You have to treat right. everybody that comes in. And if you're the natural competitive juices in you and be like, oh, fuck yeah. that guy, that's going to be hard to be like, yeah. let me help you next, Todd. Yeah. I got you. Exactly. So then I decided to go to the personal training route and I actually didn't do anything about it for about eight months after college. So I actually went out to California, played in an independent winter league out there. And reason I did that was we all know that one guy at the bar that past high school player that you might have been on a team with and belligerently drunk. <laughs> and all of a sudden, all the stories from the past come out like, oh, man, remember when we were so good? We could have won state if we just had that one guy off the bench, something like that. And I didn't want to be that guy. So I wanted to take baseball because that was my love. That was my dream. I wanted to take it as far as I could. So I went out and played in this California Winter League, hoping to get on an independent team. I came out flat. I hadn't played baseball in, you know, six or eight months. Had about a month to train and get back into swinging, that kind of thing. I ended up producing really well by the end of this uh, winter, but everybody got signed in those first couple of weeks because everybody wants to jump on that athlete that shows up. But after that, I was totally clear-headed. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to say, I did absolutely everything in my power to get to the next level. And I just didn't want to be that guy at the bar that's like, oh, remember when. Especially when the remember when is like, as you progress in life, you realize late, farther and farther away, you're like, nobody cares. Like in the grand scheme of things, nobody cares. Yeah, nobody. Which is interesting. I feel like a lot of athletes and competitive people, especially if that's such a part of your identity, they have a harder time giving that up and making that transition. But it seems like you had the right, you went into it. Well, I feel like if you asked yourself that question, like junior year of high school, you'd be like, no way, I got to figure out a way right. to do this until I die. Yeah, totally. And that was really what I wanted. Luckily, I had some amazing parents that said, you know, we think that you can make it, right? But we want you to have a good education and we want you to go into something that you want to possibly do for the rest of your life. Because even if you do make it, I mean, what's the lifespan of a athlete in sports, in professional right. sports? You could be retired at 30. 
Or so, you could make 1800 bucks a year. Right. <laughs> Unless like somebody's writing you a check to fund your life. There's no real financial yeah. upside. It's like that whole series playing for peanuts about the minor league ball players yeah. that get signed after the draft. Yeah. And I would have done that. Absolutely. Give me a hotel room. Give me a couple of meals a day. Travel on a bus. No yeah. flights. I would have driven anywhere to play. There's Probably also so. a point in your life where you, you're more likely to do that, right? right. If you're like totally. 21, 22, like, hell yeah, you should go do that. Of course. Absolutely. But thinking later on, like I said, so when I was at UMass, I was in their kinesiology program. I graduated with a degree in kinesiology, which is basically the human body in motion. And you can go into a whole bunch of different things out of kinesiology. You can do chiropractic, you can do AT, PT, OT, personal training, whatever you want to do. So that's kind of why... I felt that was a great program to go into because like I said, I switched on just one day in a training room and all of a sudden I switched from wanting to be AT to going into personal training. And there's probably a match to like, if you grew up in a household of bodybuilders and you've kind of just been indoctrinated in some way of learning about the body and watching the body transform through bodybuilding and you kind of pair that with now like a textbook education in kinesiology probably was like the matching of two things right. for you also, right? Yeah. So my dad is a perfect explanation or type of person that was a learn by trade. So in his early bodybuilding days, all he did was teach himself. Whereas now I'm going to get an education. Right. And so now as a duo, you know, I have like a newer age education style where he's got that old school mentality and learned everything on his way up in his 40 years of training. It's almost like he, well, like, okay, he would, he learned that to grow his quad, I'm just making shit up, but like he learned that to grow this muscle, he needed to do this for 20 rep, like do that 20 rep program. He learned that probably by he did it, like he exactly. just did more. Then you come up and you're like, well, now I can tell you the physical reason why that happens right. because of the breakdown in this and this happens and this happens, right? Right. Yeah. And of course, he knew some of that or pretty much yeah. most of it. He wasn't right? just a meathead. It was, yeah. He wasn't just a meathead. Yeah. He was totally a meathead. We're all meatheads. Yes. In some, in some capacity. I'm not a meathead. I'm a meathead. <laughs> a little bit. But yeah, so he learned that stuff. And the hardest part about working with a family, right, is going into that learn by trade and learn by school. And we had a couple of run-ins where I'll admit, I was like, I went to school. I know what this I'm talking is, about. Yeah, I know yeah. what I'm talking about. This is what I did. And I started to learn that the quality of training we can give by working together was much better than I know this, I know this back and forth and getting into an argument about it. You know, so I learned even after all that I learned coming up through high school and college from him, I learned even more after the fact which I'm eternally grateful for. All right. And now you, you've you been in the business for five, six years? How many? This is my seventh year. Seventh year. And probably five of those seven was strictly personal training. Then golf comes into the picture. Golf comes into now the picture. you're golf obsessed and you have basically a whole practice where you are the TPI guy. Talk to me about how you got into, where'd the golf thing come to? So, you know, you're, you're working with your dad. You guys, you know, run this gym together. Yep. You're just training regular people. You're doing athletes here locally. Right. But how does a guy from Vermont all of a sudden become like the trainer for golf? So it started because when I was building my business from day one, I think my first year I might have made a thousand bucks because I decided to do it eight months after the fact. So I had a couple of months where I started training and I was like, holy shit, I cannot live off of this. <laughs> Right. There was many times where I thought I was starting to build this business that 
this is not going to work. It's not taking off. How is this going to work? How am I going to pay student loans back? That kind of thing. So I ended up picking up a job at a local course, just being the desk guy. And because I love golf, I was terrible at it because I was swinging like a baseball player. But like, did golf become like an outlet for you post-college athlete, like as a competitive thing? Totally. And the biggest thing was I've only played team sports. So as soon as you get on the golf course, it's you against your mind. It's you against yourself. (laughs) Which is a lonely place. (laughs) It is a lonely lonely place. It is a lonely and defeating type place, but... I loved it. Sure. I love the fact that it's all on me and the competitive fuel was, it didn't matter if I was actually playing a competitive round or not, but I was competitive with myself every single time that I was out there on the course. So I picked up this job and before I even knew about the Titleist Performance Institute, I was still training and I was actually training the guy that was the director of operations at this golf course. And one day he came up and said, do you know anything about TPI? And I said, absolutely not. I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, well, TPI is a, it's called the Titleist Performance Institute. They have three different areas of medical swing coach, fitness guy, in that program. And I think that because you love fitness, you love golf, you should consider looking at it. So just pause on for a second. So this is basically, so, well, people that don't listen to golf, don't like golf, won't care about this anyway. And that's okay. Titleist is the, basically one of the biggest golf companies called golf brands. Right. This is similar to like an example. They start to, as most sports do within the last 10 years, get really into fitness and specifically understanding there's just been so much more data and research done on all sports that in the era that we live in now, 2023, every sport, you don't just play the sport anymore. There's like, here's how the body should move if you want to be a pitcher. Here's how the body should move if you want to be a swimmer. There's a whole layer of like research and data that's based on this, right? And so so Titleist basically realizes this. They create these programs around it. And to me, at least from the outside, it feels like almost like how CrossFit is the main property, but you can go and get a CrossFit level one, level two, level three. And right. I know you have beefs with that, but that's separate from that. Where like you go and do that, you get level one, level two, then you can go and open up your own gym. And now you're training people specifically for CrossFit. Right. Basically, is that similar to how you'd think about what Titleist set up with TPI? Yeah, I would say so. Luckily, I had already had a fitness practice before I went in there, but- Yeah, right after your level one, which is in person, you can just go off and start training for golf. So in the level one, you learn the full body evaluation, you learn corrective exercises, you learn all of that. And it's the same for everybody. So whether you're a medical, whether you're a swing coach, whether you're a fitness guy or a woman, everything is the same. Like I said, you learn that how to do the correctives based off your evaluation, that kind of stuff. So he tells you about this and you like, were you excited about it or it took you going there doing it and be like, no, this this clicked with me. Because I feel like now that I know you that something must have clicked with you right away with that. Yeah. So this is kind of a, for every certification you have, you need continuing ed credits. So when I initially went into it, I said, yeah, this would be cool. I can use this as some of my continuing ed credits for my other certification. And then I got there and like you said, all of a sudden it clicked and I just fell in love with it. I was like, holy cow, I can't believe there's something this specific for this sport that I love to do. And being a past athlete, when you're training for something, you want to train because you're trying to get better. Whereas I got in that funk of, okay, I don't have baseball to train for anymore. And now I'm training people. I don't really want to train myself. Yeah, I've put in the work. I've done that for years. Now I'm just going to focus on my business. But all of a sudden I had this 
moment where I was like, this is something I could train for for myself because I love the competition of golf. Yeah. Also, I mean, that was exactly why I reached out to you initially was I kind of had been, you know, for years I've been doing, you know, chest and back, buys and tries, you know, legs and shoulders, mix it up, do 10 reps, do 15 reps, do sets of five. And when I got up here and I got really into golf, I started to watch a lot of YouTube golf and read a lot of golf stuff. <laughs> yeah. And you hear about all these top guys. And I, I have no ambitions of like playing at a high level. It's just more like, oh, this is a hobby. I already like golf. I already like fitness. And there's a new way of doing this where like I see, you see golf fitness stuff now and it's not like those old school like Gary Player, like medicine ball, do some trunk, do some med ball twists and that's your golf workout. Right. Like you're watching golfers like, deadlift and box jump and do explosive movements and do rotational movements. And it looks a lot like, kind of like CrossFit, but without killing yourself. You're right. doing some of the same explosive movements. And it looks a little bit like strength building because you're doing a little bit of that. Yep. And it looks a little bit about like just overall health because you're doing rotational work and single arm and single leg movements. And so I was like, hmm, I wonder if this could be like, A, yes, it'll help me get better at golf as I move and it's fun to have that hobby. But B, this also seems like a way to train that would just make me a better all-around athlete and feel better in general. Right. Better in life. Just going into stuff like as we age after a certain age, no matter who you are, we tend to start getting muscle atrophy. We have less hormone development. We, Our bone density starts to go away. Our proprioceptive abilities, you know, knowing where you are in space, anything like that starts going away. And then when you get to a really more of the elder population, that's when you start to see this stuff really affect people. You know, we all, all heard the story of, yeah, my mom was walking down the sidewalk and there was a crack and she fell and broke her hip. So with this kind of functional training through TPI and through the work that I've done, it's really for everybody. It's Of course, it's golf specific, but all of a sudden, once I learned about it, I started to change over my whole practice to functional training is the way to go. And I'm not saying that there's no other type of training that's terrible. Like every type of training is great. But like you're talking about, all of a sudden you're going downstairs or you're going to your gym and you're just doing bicep curls, squats over and over and over again. And you're wondering why as you age or as you keep on doing that, why am I not feeling anything different? Why am I, I feel like I'm strong, but I just feel like I'm missing something. And could it be because there's something other else going on? Or is it because maybe it's not fully functional for what you're trying to do? Even like I, before I started working out with you, I would hurt my back. I would hurt my back all the time mm -hmm. in some way or another. Like I would do back squats. And then the next day, my like upper back, I would pull a muscle in my upper back. Right. Or I'd always have this like low SI joint problem. And when I started doing stuff with you related to golf, so much of it is glute activation and strengthening, hip flexor activation and strengthening, hamstring. And I'm like, yeah, I've been doing some of this stuff, but like I basically do nothing for the back half of my body. Mm -hmm. And then you start talking about how much of that stuff that impacts my back pain has almost completely gone away. Or even if I get something now, it goes away very quickly. Right. And every time we talk about it, it's because we've, as you build up glute strength, as you build up hamstring, posterior chain, core, like all of that stuff stems from back problems. And right. so like, I remember feeling stuck, like, man, I, I want to lift, but I always fucking hurt my back. And I know yeah. that a lot of people will listen to this in the same thing, but it's actually like the way out is through. The way you're going to feel better is that you're going to have to go lift and do some of these functional movements. Correct. Right. So especially since the COVID shutdown, but even before that, everybody that I'm evaluating now, there's something in their bodies that we have to correct. And so 
what I don't like to see, and honestly, in the beginning of when I was training, I would do this all the time where you just throw somebody into a workout. You kind of do a little bit of evaluation, but maybe it's not catching everything. But now through TPI, through FMS, doing a functional movement assessment and really correcting the body before you start taxing muscle fibers is what you're talking about. It's it's correcting almost every kind of ailment that, like, I was the same way, honestly. I would try to go lift, and when I was lifting, I'd be like, this hurts. Yeah. And even after all of that time, all the way through high school, college, everything of lifting, I was like, why? I don't want to do this anymore. It hurts me. And for somebody that wants to really get back into it, without doing correctives, without really figuring out what's going on in your body, that's going to happen, and that's going to push people away from it. So what's cool about TPI is you go through it and the first time that you do TPI, there's an evaluation. Talk through that a little bit. So the evaluation is a full functional movement assessment of every joint, muscle, everything in your body. So we're trying to figure out, is there joint stability, mobility in every little piece of the golf swing that we need? Is there muscle activation in every little piece of the golf swing that we need? Is there balance, stability, anything like that? So before we go through that, we're finding all of these characteristics of your golf swing without actually watching you swing. So I remember like I go to you and the first, I thought I was going to work out and basically you don't, you don't work out at all. Basically the whole thing is imagine like, you know, Adam has some type of like, you're measuring the angles of rotation in your shoulders. Like if you've ever gone to PT and they measure the rotation, right? right? Or you're holding a PVC pipe and you're trying to turn in different ways, or you're trying to, you know, hey, hey, can you touch your toes? Can you do this? Can you get into this position? And you're, Adam's kind of moving you all around. You could go to YouTube and you could type in TPI evaluation and, and watch this. But it's even beyond golf, it's really similar to like, if you were going to work out with somebody for the first time, just your average person listening is just going to go back in the gym. Right. But what you see is you do this whole assessment that measures all the rotation of your joints, right? hips, shoulders, hamstring, everything. And they give you a score on a scale of zero to 30. Is it 30? I think it's, you can get above 32. Okay. And then similar to golf, there's a handicap. And so they call it your fitness handicap. handicap, And I remember going and I'm like relatively fit person. I work out. I'm like, this should be no problem. And I was a six handicap golfer and my fitness handicap was a 28. Yep. And I was like, holy shit. And you're like, yep, this imbalance in your hips, you have this problem here. And even separate from golf, that was like a moment where I'm like, wow, I've been doing all this training and I'm the little structure of my body is wrong. And so if I just keep adding more training onto that, it's a no wonder that I get hurt. Right. hundred percent. And so the whole thought around it really is you have to correct your body before you can correct your swing. And when I was taking lessons and everything, even before I did the TPI stuff, I was unable to get into certain positions and the, whatever swing coach I was working with realized that. So we were making corrections on swings based off of what I could get to, you know, for either joint mobility or if I didn't have a certain type of activation so that I couldn't get into, you know, the finish with the golf swing to post to your tilt with my pelvis, anything like that. So we'd make certain adjustments, but that's only going to get you to a point. So if my body can't move in the patterns I'm trying to move in, my consistency goes down, my yardages go down. Every swing is going to be totally different. I can't make a consistent pattern that I'm trying to make, which is frustrating because you get to that plateau point, you know, it might be a 15 handicap, it might be a five handicap, but you just can't break it for some reason. Yeah. And I was getting golf instruction at the time. And the guy that I was working with, he was like, okay, here's the big thing they're working on. We're trying to get you to load into your trail hip. And I literally could not do that. Yep. And I was like, this guy sucks at teaching. Like I can't, (laughs) And now I realize, like, no, 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 it's because that was the right coaching. 
but my body could not get into that position. So my mind connection to that, like I could not move. And then you do the TPI stuff and you start watching some of it. And it's like the number one test is like, can you create separation between your upper body and your lower body? They have to be able to move in separate directions. Like when the golf swing unwinds after working with you for six months or a year, and you can do that now it's second nature and you don't have to think about it. And that's a cool part about it is once we build those correctives and all of a sudden your body's getting corrected, now we can move in patterns that are going to create a certain type of muscle memory. And when you get that muscle memory, all of a sudden you go to a swing coach and we totally believe that it's a team approach to the golf swing, right? I am a fitness guy. I can teach you how to swing out of your ass because that's what I do, <laughs> yeah. right? But I don't know the mechanics of the swing. I know the mechanics of the body. So when we're in the gym, what we're working on is those mechanics of the body so that when you go to a swing coach and they're trying to tell you to load into your trail hip or they're trying to tell you to transfer your weight from your backside to the front side in the downswing and getting posterior tilt, now you've felt that before and you have that muscle memory. So when it connects, and I think that you actually had a moment early on where you went, dude, this just connected. Which everybody does. Actually, you've been growing your business. I feel like at least once a month, you tell me now about some new person that you're working with who like comes in and is like, this is not worth it. I can't even move my body in this position. What's this guy talking to me about? And then all of a sudden something clicks. Yeah. There's definitely been times where I love the skeptics where they're coming in and you go through the evaluation and they're all geared up to do a workout and they do the evaluation. And I kind of make up the conversation in my head. I go home and it's like, yeah, I went to do this, like we did an evaluation today and I don't get it. Why am I doing this? Like, I'll give it one more shot, something like that. But I love those skeptics because all of a sudden those moments where they're like, holy shit, I can feel it. Right. That's well, what I Well, I remember thinking most. like, man, I went to this guy because I wanted to work out. And here I am at 6 a.m. the next morning laying on my fucking floor with my (laughs) hands under my butt cheeks trying to do a glute activation drill where like you kind of get in a bridge and put your hands under there and try to like you have to use your brain to like turn on each glute and I'm squeezing my left butt cheek, squeezing my right butt cheek. And like that was all I did that for 10 minutes. I'm like, this is the workout. Yeah. But now you learn that you can't build from there. Like you can't build from that. Exactly. Hey, dude. So one of the biggest things that I've seen, and I would say I've probably done 150 evaluations to this point. There might have been one person that had a little bit of glute activation when we did the first evaluation. So across the board, you see 100 people. The average person that comes in has no clue how to activate their glutes. And separate from golf, obviously you need that in golf, but don't you feel like that is such a root cause of so much back pain and hip pain and all that other stuff that every regular person listening to this is dealing with? Exactly. So what I personally think, and I don't know everything, so I could be wrong, but I think a lot of pain and back injuries are coming from inoptimal activation of glutes, of core. So there's something that we call lower cross syndrome. So lower cross syndrome is we are a generation of people that are constantly sitting. You wake up in the morning, you get out of bed, you're sitting down for breakfast. After breakfast, you walk to your car, you're sitting down in the car, you're going to work. For most of us, even if you're working from home, we're sitting down for most of the day, you're sitting down for lunch, you're going home, you're sitting down for dinner. After dinner, you're sitting down to watch TV. When that happens, lower cross syndrome means that see position, our hip flexors will tend to shorten and tighten, Mm -hmm. right? And our bodies are really good at evaluating what it needs and where it needs to put energy and it's trying to create the most fuel efficient engine out there so that we can go throughout our day. So as soon as our hip flexors tend to shorten and tighten, 
what happens next is our brain now is sending a signal down to the opposite side of that. The opposite side of that is your glutes. It's saying, we're not really using these, so let's put them on the back burner for a while and we don't need to activate them as much anymore. And opposite of the glutes is now your core. So when that happens, all of our activation, all of our rotational ability, all of even just walking down the street, now we're pushing that into our lumbar spine. And that's really the basis of back pain for everybody. You're shooting. Oh yeah. Well, like anything you realize all of the, so many of the pains in your body are not the root cause is not that location. Exactly. You, have you seen this guy? I've sent you this guy on YouTube, uh, on Instagram, all that, that, that squat university guy. Yep. I love his, his videos are the best to me because he starts the video and he's like, Adam was coming to me with lower back pain when he squats. Right. And then he breaks down, like he has him do some tests of his hip. And it was actually because he needs to like do something with his left knee. And that's what's causing mm -hmm. the back pain. It's like, you can just tell all that stuff comes from fucking sitting all the time. Yeah, sitting all the time. But without that optimal glute activation, you know, if we're getting back into golf or rotational sports or anything, I so wish I knew this when I was growing up because you're sitting in school constantly. And so for all of my high school athletes and everybody that comes in, for probably the first couple of workouts we're doing, we are making sure that everything is as far as glutes, core connection, everything through the body is turned on because during that high school age is when, one, you can produce the most strength because it's the highest level of hormones in your body in, for the rest of your life. So we want to make sure that everything is connected so that when we do tax all of those muscle fibers, there's a very low risk of injury. But also now you can gain even more because you're actually using what you're supposed to be using throughout exercise. It's like amazing. I'm, you just retaught me how to deadlift and I was doing traditional bar deadlift and I could barely do, I was doing 245 for 10 and my form was terrible and my back was hurting. And mm -hmm. I sent that to you and you're like, oh, we can fix that. You can definitely deadlift more than that. And you put me on the trap bar with the right form. And I honestly thought my deadlift max was like 255. And then we did the trap bar deadlift and my max was 335. Yeah. And I did that with no pain. And it was because you showed me how to use, like that should be a perfect example. You're using all of the muscles in your back from my, right. instead of just doing the deadlift with my lower back, I'm doing the deadlift now with my traps, my lats, everything pinned back. And like now I've been doing the deadlift program for four weeks. The next day I am sore and tired in from my hands all the way up through my arms, all the way through my quads and my hamstrings. My lower back doesn't hurt at all. Yep. And it's like, oh shit, you just moved all that weight because you used every muscle in your body, right. not just this muscle to like bend over and pick right. it up. Exactly. So we're trying to force the body to lock in in certain areas and be flexible in certain areas that are correct for what we're doing. I don't believe that there's any such thing as a wrong way to lift, but based off of every body, there's a wrong way to lift for what you can get to. Everybody's capable of doing certain things, but until you find out what might be limiting for certain lifts, you don't know that. So that's kind of the whole thought around this is like, we need to find certain ways to activate the correct things. We need to find certain ways to prevent that injury. And there's really nothing that you can't do. You know, we've seen like the videos of the guy that's has a massive tire on his back and he's putting six dumbbells stacked and he's doing a push up <laughs> on the dumbbells, that kind of thing. Yeah. Is that for everybody? Absolutely not. Is it really wrong? It's highly risky. How about the guy that I sent you with the towel in his mouth and he's a 115 <laughs> pound barbell and he's just pulling it up? Oh, yeah. Back. You know, I mean, there are situations that I call them that just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. 
But is it wrong for that person? Maybe not. Just because you can hit driver here, should you hit driver here? Oh, yeah. Right, let's talk about <laughs> TPI because I want to, we'll wrap up in a little bit, but I want to talk about like what is to everybody that's, I want to send this podcast people like, what the hell do you, what is a golf workout? Let's talk about some of the stuff that, that you do. Yeah. So TPI is basically, we're trying to find in the beginning, like we talked about the limiting areas of the body that we need to correct first. Once we correct those, now we're trying to put all of those joints and movements into the correct pattern for what we call the kinematic sequence. So kinematic sequence is golf really is a rotational sport in a lateral motion, right? So we're loading into the trail heel and we're pushing forward, you know, just like you would with baseball, with hockey, with anything like that. But the difference in golf is we need to be able to move joints in a certain way. And so we talk about how joints all the way up through your body through the ground is an alternating pattern of mobile joints and stable sections. So what I mean by that is there's three planes of motion. So your ankle, for example, can move in all three planes of motion. It can rotate, it can flex, extend, it can go back and forth. When we go up the chain from the ground, now we have your knee. Your knee really wants to move in that flexion extension pattern. Mm -hmm. So just forward and back. Can it rotate a little bit? But the structure of the knee does not want to rotate. And at a certain point, if you're rotating it, that's when bad things happen. Up the chain from that is your hip. Your hip can move in all three planes of motion. So that's a mobile joint that we can really access. Up the chain from that is your lumbar spine. Then into T-spine can move in all three planes of motion. Then we go to the neck. Next one really wants to move forward and back, right? Cervical spine. Then we got your shoulder can move in all three planes of motion. Elbow hinge joint just moving back and forth, back to wrist. So it's an alternating pattern. If there is something along that line from ground up, that cannot take that force or is inactive, it moves on to the next part of the chain. So when we were talking about glute activation earlier, with glute activation, we need hip mobility so that we can rotate internally and externally. If we don't, can't get to that point, what's the next part up that chain is lumbar spine. And so a lot of golfers, especially that 50 and older age that we know of always have lower back injuries. Or you've always played with the guy that was like, yeah, I played yesterday. I shouldn't be out here today because I can't even, you know, I, I feel like I need a cane to be out here. I don't think you I've know? ever played a, a round of golf in my life where that hasn't happened. Exactly. And everybody says that. Right. And it's not necessarily that they needed that to happen. They just needed to know that there's probably something along that chain of the body that can move or we can make it move in a correct way, but now it's broken down. So a good example is Tiger Woods. So he was a guy that could hit the long ball. He could do everything. And all of a sudden he's going through these crazy back injuries. Everybody used to make fun of him because he'd say, I just couldn't activate my glutes. Yeah, exactly. And everybody was like making fun of him for that. Yeah, but it's so actually the truth. It's actually the <laughs> truth. So pre Tiger Woods injuries, when he was on that huge rampage of just absolutely killing everybody in every step possible, he was moving in a consistent pattern, but he could have taken 10 million swings in that consistent pattern. And that next swing after the 10 million, something broke down. Right. And that was his lower back because right. there was something that wasn't optimal as far as, you know, preventing that injury. And so now he's getting to a point where, you know, he has the back fusion and all that kind of stuff. But he has pulled out of tournaments now because he says during the practice round today, I could not activate my glutes. And now he knows that without activating those glutes, it's going to be another risk of injury to that back. Yeah. So some of the movements that you do, like let's talk specifically about the exercise, about the exercise. So like you do a lot of, initially it's going to be, there's a lot of corrective work and that's just like, those are like drills that you can do at home. Like every right. day you're doing, you know, glute activation, clamshell, stuff like that. But once you actually get to training and you're trying to let's talk about some of the stuff that you do with me, for example, as somebody who's like, we've corrected it. Now we're building. Right. What do we do? So Initially, we'll teach you how to, now that we have corrections in joints or muscle, 
we teach you how to use those. So we might do something like a, for example, a deadlift, like you were talking about. But at the top of this deadlift, instead of just getting to the top and going back down, now we're mentally focusing on, okay, once we get to the top, we know we have glute activation. So how do we rotate our pelvis or transition our pelvis from anterior tilt where that's at the bottom of that deadlift? Maybe you have a little bit of S curve in the back maybe. And now we're trying to push that pelvis underneath your torso. And how are we going to do that? And that's by squeezing those glutes together and really crashing that core back towards the spine and creating one really stable joint to protect that lower back. So we're learning how to do that kind of stuff. And then going back to that is the deadlift posterior tilt is huge in the golf swing for transfer of weight for power and really protecting that lower back area and i love that example because like a deadlift is something that you talk about functional movements like that will help you for golf it'll help you for overall strength like you can check a bunch of boxes and so if you happen to be into golf like it now gives you a purpose you're like you know i'm not just deadlifting because i want to see how much i can deadlift that is part of it but also like there's research on deadlift improving like swing speed because you can push more off, you can create more ground force. So for me at this point in life, I'm like, this is awesome. This gives me something to like train for. And what am I actually training for? Playing in a bunch of tournaments in Vermont, like doesn't really matter. But at this point in my life, it gives me a hobby that I feel like I can really enjoy and and have it connect to other things that I'm doing. Totally. And you know, like you said, it might just be Vermont, but I don't know about you. You know, I played at Fenway Park during the Beanpot tournament at UMass and standing up at the plate, that emotion, the anxiety, (laughs) that competitive feel, you can feel the history of where you're Uh. at. You got nerves with that, but that's something I've been doing forever. I was playing baseball. So like the first time I ever went to a qualifier, I literally was standing in the parking lot and pulling my bag out and my whole body was shaking because I had so much stress and anxiety and uh, i'm so excited that's why it's it. that's why golf is great and anybody that tells me that what does it matter like in this grand scheme of thing it doesn't matter but it's one of the only sports at this point in life that you can recreate that feeling and right. you're like for what why am i so nervous right now exactly why am i so nervous yeah. right now why am i nervous why is this happening but now you're starting to train for it and all of a sudden it's like okay well some of that anxiety can kind of go away because i think it's like it's the thought of the unknown yeah that's what it was for me like am i going to shoot at 115 today (laughs) right Right. and just totally embarrass myself because i have no idea what the hell i'm doing but now it's getting to a point and i'm sure like you've noticed too is you're going to a qualifier you still get a little bit of anxiety you really want to produce well and you want to have a really good round but now you're training for it and you know okay i've been making these consistent patterns i can really feel myself load. I've gone through all of this on the range and now you have a little bit more confidence rather than that anxiety. I'm more prepared. Exactly. I know that the bad, it won't be that bad. First, obviously, if I go out there cold. Okay, well, we'll we'll talk about golf in one second, but deadlift, there's a lot of explosive movements like box jumps, Mm -hmm. broad jumps. You might deadlift and broad jump. And so I like that. There's a lot of springy type of, it's brought in something, and you might not think golf is that athletic of a sport, but like for me, it's fun. It's brought a lot of, I haven't box jumped in a while and jumping and stuff. It's brought a lot more athleticism into my working right. out. You also do a lot of stuff with like the landmine. Landmine is a great piece of equipment for rotational power. Right, right? exactly. And then what the landmine is a good example of how we're learning how to now move in a kinematic sequence. So the kinematic sequence being for the golf swing is from the ground up. So Ideally, when we're going to the backswing, our hips are moving a little bit first before our torso. Our torso is then moving a little bit first before our shoulders. Our shoulders are then moving a little bit first before the golf club. And it's that same pattern coming back through where we want hips to move first, 
into torso, into glutes, into torso, through the upper body, all the way through the shoulders and arms, and then out the club. So it's a four-step process. So something like the landmine, if you're using it, and if, whether you're doing rotational power movement or a squat power movement, you're pushing up from the ground and you're trying to create that pattern of glutes are getting in a posterior first that's driving that power up through your core, up through the shoulders and arms, and all the way out to that finishing press. The thing with golf and what a lot of people think with fitness training for golf is, oh, it's got to be a lot of core, right? <laughs> that's one thing that I got, especially in the beginning, was like, oh, you're teaching golf fitness, so you guys just doing like a lot of core and, uh, you know, like rotational stuff? I'm like, yeah, that's about 5% of it. But also the person <laughs> who's usually saying that is the person who needs that core. <laughs> <for our> anyway, <laughs> yeah, like, totally. oh, you're going to pass on core work, Todd? Like, I don't yeah. think so. Yeah, so we're moving those patterns and then we're teaching speed at the same time we're teaching power. Yeah. So with speed, we're always switching back and forth from teaching your strength muscle fibers that they can be strong, but they can be fast at the same time. Right. So we'll do like, we might do like a single leg squat with a, a rear foot elevated single leg squat, Bulgarian split squat with 50 pound dumbbells. You might do eight of those, drop the dumbbell. By the way, this is real shit. This is not like our people that are listening. <laughs> yeah. Like I challenge the average listener to do a single leg squat with 50 pound dumbbells in each hand. Do that for 10, drop them, and then do a single leg, then jump off of one yeah, leg for 10. Jump off and then leg. tell me that a golf workout is not a real workout. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's totally what it is. And then that's how we're working on power. So we're trying to do something that's extremely heavy that your body can handle, right? We got to make sure that your body can handle it first. So we're trying to do something extremely heavy and then immediately going to something that's light or explosive to show that heavy moving muscle fiber that it can be light and explosive. Yeah. And then at the same time, we're constantly working on non-dominant to dominant side. So there's something called the big break theory in this world of TPI and in sports, where we've noticed that the athletes that can be as explosive and powerful and fast from their non-dominant side are usually producing more power outputs, quicker swing speeds, everything from their dominant side. So Phil Mickelson's a great example. When he was over the age of 50, he gained 30 yards back off the tee. And everybody's like, how the hell is that possible? Well, Phil Mickelson is somebody that swings a golf cup lefty, but he also throws a football righty. So do you think also this is why, you know, like how they'll just have a PGA Tour player and they'll be like, look at Dustin Johnson, lefty, and his lefty swing is also pretty dope. Is 100%. that connected to that? Yep. You can guarantee that anybody like Bryson, like Brooks Kapka, like Dustin Johnson, who are hitting furthest on tour, they can also do it from that opposite side. The biggest part of that, that big big thing is if we're not training, a lot of people always train the dominant side. If we look at even football. So in football, when you watch the NFL combine, most of the top guys that are running the 40 yard dash the fastest are D-backs. And why is that? Because a D-back position, more than half the time, they're running backwards as fast as they can to try and jump a route, or they're trying to follow the guy that they're... Literally growing both halves of your legs, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> so, because they can run as fast as they can backwards as they can forwards, now all of a sudden their forward running process is quicker. Also, this is another thing. So, from lifting, I try to, just because I want to be in good shape and I want to be strong, but more than that, I don't want to get hurt. I've kind of switched every lift that I do to now be a single leg or single arm movement. And I right. think that's something that comes from you. But even just for people that are lifting in general, like instead of a dumbbell row now, I might do the bird dog row where like I have one foot up. I don't ever back squat anymore. I do single leg squats. Right. I'm trying to split up all those things because I feel like I'm a perfect example of that of 
I just built up all these imbalances. And when you don't train one half at a time, and so a lot of the lifting that we do now with you is you're splitting those up. Right. And yeah, you're doing one leg up and it's hard as shit to balance on your other foot. Exactly. And that's it right there is why don't we do that? And a lot of times it's harder. But that to me is like, oh, that's why I get hurt though, because yes. clearly something's up with this leg. Right. So why is this leg, I have no balance on this leg. Right. Now I'm going to put 315 on my back and try to fucking squat that. No wonder I'm going to hurt myself somehow. Exactly. So really what I've geared and what you've noticed too when we're training is even if we're using just one muscle group, what else can we incorporate with that muscle group that can be functional and help out for the overall body? Yeah. So like you're saying with those rows, being in a bird dog position, of course, it's going to be tough, but trying to hold that bird dog position, we're now learning how to stabilize in that one hand that's on the bench and that one hip that's on the bench. And how do we connect that? Those two is through the core. So we're working on core stabilization while you're doing a row or in that single leg split squat, like you're talking about. When we go down into the bottom part of that single leg split squat, okay, now let's rotate over the top of that leg that's out in front. And why are we doing that? Because we're creating hip stability. We're creating ankle stability. We're teaching the knee that we don't want the knee to rotate through that because it's glued in and locked into place. We're teaching that the lower body can now be stable while the upper body moves. So we're trying to do as much as we can in one motion that's helping out your overall being. All right, we got to wrap up because you got to go paint Laurie's house. I got to paint Laurie's but house. But we'll, we'll do this more often. Well, I got to wait to see the feedback. No, I'm kidding. This is great. <laughs> we could talk for hours. There's oh, lots here. For sure. But uh, let's wrap up and maybe like in five minutes, let's talk about golf specifically. I'm going to put you on the spot. What's your handicap? My handicap right now is a 6.5. Do you have golf goals that you've set for yourself for 2023? And I do. if so, you need to tell me what they are. <laughs> I'll tell so, you mine. Want me to read you mine? I would love I'll to. I'll read you mine. If you're listening to this podcast, this was in the in one of the last episodes, but here we go. Here are my goals. Right now, my index is 2.6. My goal is to finish the year zero index or better. Show off. Can we do that? Can we <laughs> do that? Can, yeah. Okay. I want to have two rounds in the 60s. I like this. I heard this on No Laying Up. But like, as a benchmark, like last year, I broke par for the first time. I think just as a random goal, I want to have two rounds in the 60s. I think it's possible. Maybe not. Make the cut at the Vermont Am. So that would mean qualify and play four rounds. Make the cut and win a match at the Mid-Am. Win the club championship at Vermont National. Now, again, goals are like supposed to be stretch goals. Yeah. I'm not putting anybody on blast and saying that I'm going to, but that would be the goal, that right? That would be the goal. Oh, yeah. Play as many competitive rounds as I can. This just gets more competitive golf in during the week and I get the nerves up a little bit. And then I want to track my stats. I think what gets measured gets managed. I can't really actually get better if I don't put them all in. So those right. are my goals. What are your goals? So my goals this year is, first of all, shoot a par round. So I've been very close before, even to the point where I've had, I think, 10 rounds, one over par. You've had 10? 10, 10 rounds, one over par, and at least five of those came down to a putt on the 18th. Uh, so it's kind of a goal that I'm close to and I really want to hit because I, in my mind, it's a threshold I got to hit before I can get past it. And if you can shoot even par at any course that you play regularly, which course would you want it to be at? Either National or Country Club of Vermont. Those are two good ones. Yeah. Reason being is, one, they're beautiful. Those are, yeah. But- they're also challenging and they're challenging in different ways. Yeah. Those are big boy and girl golf Those courses. Those are big boys, yeah. definitely. But definitely them just because there's days where I can go out there and I'll be like, man, I'm playing so great and I'll shoot mid, low, high 70s, right? Yeah. I could go the next day and shoot a 90. So it's kind of that ebb and flow where I just want to knock it out there just because I think that once I do, I'll be like, oh man, I've shot I'm reading this book called Be a Player from these two women who run this golf suit. It's called like Vision 54. And they have this frame of mind, which is like, let me ask you this question. At National, have you birdied every hole on that course? I don't think so. 
Because you haven't played there that much. No. If you played there a lot, would you have birdied every hole? I think so. If you played that course as much as I play that course, would you have birdied every hole? Yes. Probably. I've birdied every hole there. They want you to think that, wait a second, I've made birdie on every hole here. Therefore, I could shoot 54. Yeah, absolutely. The problem is that's not how I think. I think like... (laughs) I can't hit this OB because I don't want to shoot 84. Yeah, right. Exactly. Remember when you hit that guy's house and it <laughs> bounced back? <laughs> Literally, boom. Oh, scream okay, right so, into the so, house. so you want to shoot a round. So you want an even par round. Okay. We've got to speak this in the unit. So you're an even par round. What else? Yep. I want a round with no three putts. No three putts. I want a round with no double bogeys. <sighs> Those are the killers. Those are the killers for sure. I think from like still where I'm at now, like from six on all the way down, the difference when I look at the people that I know that are zeros or better, it's they don't make the doubles. Yeah, exactly. They don't make. They might make mistakes, but it's not a double. And then you have Adam and I played in a tournament together, and we we both were. <laughs> it was an easy par five. We both hit great drive in the middle of the fairway. We're standing right in the middle of the fairway. We both <laughs> hammer. I hammered mine OB left. He hammered his OB right, and we were like, "Oh my god, did this just happen?" <laughs> and that's just the perfect summation of like why we're not zero or better exactly those cannot happen no they cannot happen another goal of mine like yours is to qualify for the vermont amateur so i haven't yet qualified i've done qualifiers before i've been really close to the cut line you had a great front nine great front nine you were there yep i was there that was one of the oh man that mid-am yeah great front nine had to wait for about 20 minutes on the first tee box for the last few groups to go off and this is part of the mental part of golf I've been hitting my five wood great all day. I'm going to hit it off of this to be really conservative for this par five that I'm on. And don't even take a practice swing after standing there for 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I was just so geared into the fact that I was playing golf that 20 minutes felt like three seconds. And immediately hammered one left. Hammered one to the left OB. And I was like, oh, shit. And so put another ball down and overcorrected myself. Double crossed myself, pulled another one to the left, oh, almost OB, and I was like, "That's it. If I can't find this second one, I'm going." Also, this is where like playing tournament golf, like it doesn't matter, but this is where you're like, "Oh my!" Because if it's just you playing with your buddies and you hammer another one OB, you just you pick up, you drive up the cart, and you you take an eight on the yeah. scorecard, and you go play the next hole. By you're the now, way, I did take an eight. Of course, <laughs> you're now standing on the first tee. I have a similar story. This is actually ended up positive, but on the second day of the club championship last year, I hit three balls. I hit three balls off the first tee and I made par and I found my first ball. So my first ball was way up the right side. Mm-hmm. Everyone in my group goes, ah, you got to hit another one. I hit my provisional OB. Oh my God. <laughs> so I have to hit a third tee ball on the first hole. And I hit my third ball in play and we're walking up and I found my first one. Mm, that's got to be the best feeling. <laughs> yeah. But also like those are just the nerves. That's just the nerves. It and that's nerves. like what I want to, that same mid-am, the second hole, I was like, my game was great. My swing felt great. Just it felt different on that course. And I get to the second tee and I just, I hit one absolutely dead left. Like <laughs> I haven't, I don't have that miss for 50 swings and then it comes out in a tournament, absolutely dead left. And I remember texting you about it and you're like, that miss is just nerves, like straight up nerves because yep. your brain just like hangs on. Yep. That's that, uh, what we call the false positives where it might sound positive in your brain of, all right, I can't hit this over here. So I'm, I'm not going to hit this. But as soon as you say that can't or not, your body takes that in as a negative feeling. I could have blown the ball a mile off the planet to the right and been absolutely totally fine. Yep. And I hit it dead left. Yep. Yep. I've heard this all the time of, I always had that first T or t-box anxiety and is because i was thinking about where i should not hit it yeah. right and guess what happens it goes there it's the same thing with baseball i can't strike out this at bat 
you're striking out. No doubt. No doubt. It's because it might sound like it's a positive thing, but it's not. There's no confidence. I think the perfect example is in the AM qualifier this year, I was so nervous leading up to it. And my whole family was sick that morning. And it was at a course where you couldn't hit balls before. There's no range at Williston. So you couldn't hit balls before. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to get up super early. I'm going to go over to national. I'm going to hit balls there. I'm going to go there. Everybody's sick in my house. I got to take the kids to school. I got to the first tee for the AM qualifier 10 minutes before my tee time and I didn't make one swing and I played the best round that I played all year. Yep, exactly. Because, you know, it's just like, well, I didn't get to warm up. I didn't get to do anything. Welcome to the shit show. Let's yeah. go. Let's okay. Game. All right. You got to go for real now. Follow Adam on Instagram. It's at coachpick802. I'll put it in here because you'll, we'll get you some new followers from this episode. Yeah, and you know, on there you can check out... Uh, some of the exercises we're doing, you're on there doing some Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. You, know? you can see some of this stuff. And also, like, just if you have a broader awareness of TPI, and I know there's going to be people that are actually in Vermont that are going to listen to this because it's going to get shared around. And uh, hopefully, Adam will, will get a new client or two from this podcast. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Um, yeah, well, thank you for having me. Okay. We'll be, let's do it again. Okay, let's do it again. <laughs> thank you. Okay, ready? Go ahead. You're listening to Dave's podcast. That was great. Do one more. Say, you're listening to Dave Gerhardt's podcast. You're listening to Dave Gerhardt's podcast. Awesome.